This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. My name is Hal Hester. Welcome to Vine Life. Good to have you here this morning. Hope that your morning has been full of uh, just a sense of God's presence, uh, you, that you have had a chance to really you know, dive deep into God's uh, love, His mercy for us, and uh, that you've sensed what He is doing in your life this morning. If you haven't, my prayer is that as we continue uh, today in His Word, that you will have a greater sense of what God is speaking to you this morning. Well, welcome to week two of our series in the Gospel of John. Uh, you know, as you may have seen on the screen uh, there, just uh, the, the words eternal life, uh, the, you know, the name of this series actually is, is taken specifically from a major theme in the Gospel of John, that of eternal life. Now, as you look at the majority of the Gospels, the other three Gospels, uh, the primary kind of driving message of those Gospels, however they go about it, is still really centered in this idea of the kingdom of God. But the Gospel of John uses this other phrase, eternal life, uh, sometimes just simply saying life, uh, using specific words in Greek for life, that of uh, sozo, uh, driving from that, that concept of an abundant life or an overflowing life, and then those, that term specifically eternal life, uh, both of these kind of contributing to that sense of expectation that there is a life that is different from biological life. There is a life that is different uh, from just merely our physical existence, but that we have been invited into, been called into a way of life uh, that is transcendent, that gives life here in the midst of our experience of this world that exceeds that. And so uh, the Gospel of John basically shorthands the kingdom of God this way, that, that real Kingdom living is where you and I experience eternity in the present, where you and I have the abundant and overflowing presence of God in our lives so that we experience life in a completely different way. And that just threads all the way through this gospel. And I, I hope as we go through this gospel that you begin to see that and, and how it imparts life to you and I. Well, today we are looking at the ministry and the testimony of John the Baptist. Now, the baptizer's ministry is something that's really often kind of overlooked, uh, uh, is, is important as it is to preparing the way, right? I mean, that's his, his job, his assignment from heaven was to prepare the way. And yet, oftentimes, you know, just we kind of treat it a little bit like a speed bump on our way to the important stuff, you know, and uh, we kind of miss or, uh, you know, uh, make diminutive uh, the power of his ministry. And I think it's really important. It informs our understanding of how eternal life comes to us and to those around us and how God will use us in preparing the way for others. So with that said, I want to jump right into our text this morning uh, so that we can get to it. John chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 19 through 34 this morning. If you're using a phone or tablet, please do me the favor, set that to silent for the sake of those around you. I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version, but please follow along in whatever translation you have in your lap. That one's my favorite because you're reading it. Let's take a look. John 1, beginning in verse 19, and we read these words. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. They said to them, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, so then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me 
the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. So if you were with us last week, uh, you may have picked up that, you know, unlike the gospel of Mark that we, you know, just finished, there's no mystery to resolve or to solve, right? The last time we called it unsolved or, or unveiled mysteries, and, and we talked about how that just all through the gospel of Mark, there was this sense of, of mystery that was being revealed to us a little bit of a time, and we were being kind of led through a storyline, through a path leading us to a conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah, that He is the kingdom, that He is the way. Uh, And uh, here in John, he kind of goes completely in the opposite direction of Mark. Instead of beginning with a mystery and kind of unveiling it, like John just right to it, he jumps to it from the word go, and he says, I want you to know who it is that we're talking about. And, And he begins with that whole thing from Genesis in the beginning, and he lays out this very clear, uh, very articulate picture of uh, the eternal nature of Jesus, that Jesus is not just a, you know, a divine person, uh, as some may have claimed, uh, that he is not just a revelation of God, but he is God in the flesh. He is the logos, and he equates that sense of logos uh, with the source of all things, uh, drawing both from Greek philosophy drawing also from the Genesis accounts from the Torah, uh, really painting this beautiful picture and bringing both the Gentile world and the Hebrew world together to paint a picture of just who Jesus is, that he is not just uh, an, an expression of God, but very God. He is the eternal. So here today... Uh, Still in the first chapter, just a few verses later, we're here in verse 34, and we begin to read the testimony of John the Baptist. And John says, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So the Apostle John is leaving us no room for any ambiguity unlike the the mystery in Mark. The apostle opts instead for just clear and repeated statements, right? So we're we're in the first 34 verses of chapter 1. When you look at that, it just kind of, you know, if you kind of scroll back out a little bit, you know, it's it's harder to tell on your phone, maybe, but uh, uh, if you've got a, a maybe actually a physical Bible and you look at it and you just look at that little bit of text, right, and you say, Man, we're, this is a long gospel, and already, like multiple times, it has been declared over and over. Like he is, he is driving the point home. If you're missing this point, like you're just not paying attention, right? I mean, there's, there's no way you miss this. They, the driving point over and over and over again. He wants you to know just who Jesus is. Now, Using that little statement there as a summary of the baptizer's testimony is actually kind of building on several concepts and several ideas uh, that uh, you know is is really important for us to unpack. First, John's role as the fulfillment of what Israel failed to do. He is he is fulfilling everything that the Old Testament tells us was Israel's job. 
Israel was understood uh, throughout the Old Testament uh, to be that reconcile or that revelatory force in the world. They were called to be the city on the hill. They were called to be the light unto the Gentiles. A lot of times we think that's new language in the New Testament. Uh, if you don't read through your Old Testament or you like kind of treat the Old Testament as something like that's the, you know, before God became a Christian kind of thing, you know, like uh, if you disengage it from the New Testament, uh, then you will, you will pervert the Old Testament into just nothing but rules and legalism and you will miss the God who has spent all of eternity like setting the stage so that you might know him personally, and that you might live and dwell with him forever. You are just kind of jettisoning the whole history of what God has done in the world and why it matters. In this case, like the Israel had been given a commission from the very beginning to be the hope and the light to the nations. That's the way typically uh, that they would say to the world, to the, to the people who do not know him. So this, this phrase is used over and over again uh, in the Old Testament for the nations. He's not referring to like nation states. He's not referring to kingdoms of the earth. Um, when he's using that term nations, he's referring to everyone who is outside of the good news that has been given to Israel. And Israel has been given an occupation, a commission to be the light to everyone, to demonstrate what it looks like to be in a relationship with God. There's supposed to be hope and healing. They're supposed to be the good news embodied in who they are. And instead, they have reduced it down to rules. Like that is, that is the point, really, of the Old Testament is that They've missed the opportunity. They've missed the message. And that's what the prophets are all about. They're just saying, look, look back here, uh, Torah gave you all of this great news, good news. It, it get, told you about this amazing God who loves you and has, has done everything for you, has put the stars in the heavens, he's created the earth, all these things. It's, it's a declaration of his incredible love for you. And you've absolutely missed it. You've, you've hyper-focused, you've zeroed in on all these things. And instead of being a light to the nations, you've just kind of like said, well, we're satisfied, we're, we're good, you know, and everybody else can, well, you know, go to hell. I, I, I don't suppose any church people have ever kind of thought that way ever in, in time and history where, well, my family's saved, so it just doesn't matter. But Nonetheless, there was this problem with Israel that where they had, uh, this, they had absolutely failed to do what God had commissioned them to do. Uh, so they were told, you be a city on a hill. You be a light to the nations. And then Jesus regularly unpacks that and chastises the leaders of Israel and says, you've utterly failed at doing this, and so since you won't do it, I will find someone else who will, and he brings the gospel to the nations. I think that's an important thing for us to just kind of think about for a moment, that how critically important it is for you and I to fulfill our commission, that it's not just something that God just in a sweet by and by kind of wants, but he literally has called you and I to be hope, light, healing for those who are afar off. Now, he begins that, that right there in John, and he tells us that, listen, John is now taking on the entire commission of Israel. The thing that Israel was supposed to be now becomes embodied in the person of John the Baptist as he is out there proclaiming in the wilderness. And they're coming to him and they're going, what do you think you're doing? That's our job. And the answer really is, well, since you didn't do your job, I've just, God sent me to do your job for you. That's not, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. That's the Hal Hester paraphrase. You didn't know that. But, uh, but you know, uh, he, is, he is telling them that, listen, the good news to the cosmos for everyone and everything found its source and its purpose in this logos. And ultimately, all of creation, all of the cosmos finds its ultimate fulfillment 
because of this good news. Now, in this, the second pillar is that he is the messenger who prepares the way coming right out of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The apostle makes the baptizer, and I'm going to refer to it because there's just too many Johns in this account, right? If I start saying John said this and John did that, it could get confusing. So the apostle, John, the apostle, I'm just going to call him the apostle for the rest of this message, make that easy, and I'm going to refer to the baptizer, and so hopefully we'll just take the Johns out of it and not you won't get confused, or, or maybe you will, I don't know. So hopefully I'm being clear, but the apostle makes the baptizer the exclamation point on the words of Isaiah the prophet. The baptizer was the one who had come to prepare the way of the Lord. The way was a common phrase in Hebrew culture and society and is still used today. They call it zedakah. Zedakah, if you translate it very literally from Hebrew into English, it would be righteousness. Righteousness has worked its way kind of like since the Reformation. We've kind of turned, we've reduced righteousness down into this whole concept of just like you do pure and holy things and you're righteous if you don't do anything wrong. And I have emphasized to you over and over again that the broader concept of righteousness going back to Abraham and why Abraham was called righteous was not because he did everything perfectly right, but because he was in a right relationship to the Father. That's what made him righteous. That's how he was counted as righteous, because he was in a right relationship so that's how you and i are righteous we are the righteousness of god not because you and i do everything perfectly right not because we can check all the boxes not because just simply because uh, our sins are forgiven although that is significant to it but you and i have been put now into a right relationship that's what makes us righteous zedekah righteousness then was understood uh, by the jewish people as the way, the way of doing life right. And so they just simply shorthanded it that way. They would say, uh, they would say, Zedakah. Uh, even today, you can go in a number of synagogues. If you look on the wall or something, there might be something to the effect of, you know, uh, for that synagogue, 40 years of Zedakah, or 50 years, or 150 years of Zedekah. In other words, they're maybe on an anniversary or whatever, they will say, this synagogue represents in this community 50 years of living the way, of demonstrating the right way to the world around us. He was saying, I have come to prepare the way, the Zedekah, but not as a noun, the way we would properly use it, but as an adverb to describe what was life, what was life supposed to be like. So, here in this text, what you and I read as he is preparing the way of the Lord, literally, originally in the text of Isaiah, would have been preparing the way for Yahweh, not just as Lord or even as a divine being or person, as like the Watchtower cult uh, represent, you know, misrepresents Jesus, but instead like the very God of the Jews, the one in whom they identify with as the source of all life and understanding of where the world has come from, the, the one who is the source of the entire cosmos, that God, Yahweh God, was revealed in the personhood of Jesus, make straight the way, not for a representative, make way, make the way, prepare the way so that people are walking Zedekah, so people are living according to Zedekah, that they are experiencing. So prepare the way of Yahweh. Jesus is not coming to just simply reveal Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. Otherwise, two people are doing the same job, right? 
if, if John ba the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus and Jesus is just a God or just a representative God or maybe just a human or whatever, then so John the Baptist said, made straight the way of Jesus so that Jesus could make straight the way of Yahweh. See, there's, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's not what the text says. Uh, there's this clear declaration through John. He wants you and I to grasp that the God of the universe, the one who orchestrated all these things, that logos, that source of all things, John the Baptist is preparing that way, and so he is revealing, he is making the way ready for Yahweh to come to his people and reveal himself. Third, the baptizer also tells us that Jesus is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Now, that's threefold for you and I. It is first in the sense of the Paschal Lamb, right? You and I, uh, if we look back through the whole thing about the Passover and you know the blood of the Lamb being put on the doorpost of the people of God, and so then God passed over them and did not, they, they did not die. Because of the blood of the Lamb was on them, it didn't mean that they were perfect or anything else, it just meant they were in Zedekah, they were in right relationship with God, and so he passed over them in spite of their deficiencies, in spite of their sin, and that becomes a picture for you and I, that the blood of the Lamb covers us, and so God passes over our past, our indiscrepancies, our, our sin, our, all the things that make us imperfect. He passes over that. Second, because he is declaring this out of Isaiah, because uh, he is pointing back to Isaiah, uh, you and I are also drawn to the texts of the suffering servant of Isaiah. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 62. Uh, I, you know, I could go on. I, it, it's not really, you're not going to remember all that, but this is my point is that, that there is a deeply intertwined picture within the work of Isaiah, that the Lamb of God and the suffering servant are one in the same. And so there's this deep sense in which we have this work that God is doing through Jesus that is birthed through uh, the pain and the sorrow of suffering, that God is identifying with our pain in the world. You see, in the, in the, if you look throughout most every pagan story about the gods coming into the world, uh, it's to inflict more pain and suffering, right? I mean, they come and they like, the guy, you know, like Zeus pretends to be, you know, a guy or, you know, an animal or whatever, and then sneaks up on them and, you know, rapes them. And you're like, wow, that's a lovely God. You know, it just takes advantage of everybody. No, in, in, when you look in pagan history, like there is not this story that is so unique to Christianity of the God who enters into our pain and understands our suffering and identifies with our suffering. And so his solution to suffering in the world is not that he takes away free will, not that he takes away our ability to act, not that he somehow neuters us or takes away our ability to be the creative beings created in his image. Instead, he comes alongside of us in the midst of our pain and he journeys with us. That's the picture of the suffering servant that's painted throughout the work of Isaiah. He is the one who's right there with us in the midst, who knows what it's like to be tempted in all ways that you and I are tempted, and yet he is without sin. He doesn't yield to the temptation. He is the God who walks through us in the midst of our difficulties, our tragedies, and does not forsake us. The third picture of the Lamb that we want to pull in is also because John repeatedly uses the Lamb not only throughout the, the gospel here, but also in his other writings uh, specifically, one of the things you might think of is Revelation chapter 5. And we have the Lamb, you know, this apocalyptic Lamb, the Lamb of Revelation. And the thing we're told about the Lamb from that work is that uh, that Lamb is different than any other Lamb because this is the Lamb who not only like pays the price 
But then this lamb is the one who brings judgment on the enemies of God. Everything that works against the hope, the healing of the nations, everything that works against the restoration and and the fellowship of of the saints uh, with God, like that lamb brings judgments on the enemies of God. Now, how does he do that? He does that because it says that he is the only one who is worthy to open the seals of judgment. He's the only one who's worthy to be worshipped. He's the only one because he has paid this price that nobody else could pay. And so because he's worthy to be worshipped, because he is the true God, and because of, of, of what he has done, he is then worthy to pass judgment. Because you know what it's like when the unworthy pass judgment, right? Have you ever suffered someone else's judgment? Have you? I'm reminded every time I'm tempted to judge someone else that Revelation 5 says it clearly. There is no, you are not worthy. You're not worthy to pass the judgment. You are not worthy to make the final statements about who they are or what God might do in that situation. You're not worthy. He is worthy. So now we have this kind of trifecta, if you will, about who this Lamb of God is in the message of John. Uh, He's the apocalyptic Lamb. He's the one who's worthy, and, and He will settle all the accounts. He's the one who can set everything right. He's the suffering servant that he identifies with us and knows our pain and knows all the things that we've been through and and identifies with us and doesn't forsake us but goes with us through the fire to strengthen us, goes with us through the fire so that we can make this short journey, 70 years on average, the scripture talks about, some longer, some significantly shorter. But the apostles repeatedly refer to it as this light and momentary trouble. It's not making light of your pain, your circumstances. It's just saying that in the scope of eternity, in the scope of the big picture, it is a short thing. It is a short experience in comparison to all that we will ever encounter in our relationship with God of all that He is calling us to, inviting us to. But it says that He doesn't abandon us in that moment. He goes with us through it. And that He is the one who has put His blood on us so that we pass through death into life. So that we do not suffer as our sins deserve, but instead we have been brought into this place of good news. That That is what John the Baptist is preparing the way for. Now, here's the thing is that usually what we want to do is we want to get on to the big event of telling those things, right? We we, we just kind of speed bump it and we rush over. I, I don't care whether it's a modern uh, you know, telling, or even if you look at the majority of the Gospels, right? There's just kind of like, you know, yeah, John the Baptist, you know, and we just kind of keep going. Uh, you know, uh, uh, oftentimes, especially like in uh, the Protestant church, you know, we're getting to Christmas time, and we kind of like, you know, we just mentioned John the Baptist on the way to talking about all that Jesus is dead, right? We, you know, we, we're, we're, we, we just like kind of just speed bump John the Baptist all the time, like he's just not important. John, John does differently. He spends more time than most of the Gospels by far. But what he's also telling us is why we need to know about the ministry of the baptizer. See, the baptizer is not only proclaiming, he's not only speaking, he's not only just telling people that Messiah is coming, he is preparing the way. 
That's significant. Now, when you and I look like in the gospel accounts, here's John and he's, he's out there preparing the way and he's proclaiming. And yet, um, his ministry and his life kind of end unceremoniously. He's proclaimed the coming of Messiah, and yet he is not one of those invited into Jesus' inner circle. In fact, maybe you've been watching The Chosen or something like that, and you kind of see, and I mean, there's this familial sense because they're cousins or whatever. I, I don't know if that's the way it was or not. I, I think it's a fair portrayal, but uh, you know, uh, that because of Mary and Elizabeth's communications and things like that, there was some sense of that, but, but we, we really, we honestly don't know. What I do know is that John the Baptist was not invited into Jesus' inner circle some of his former disciples go to follow Jesus, and some of them become part of Jesus' inner circle, right? You know, you got Andrew and Philip, you know, and they, they become part of, you know, the, just not only the team, but, you know, Andrew and, and all, they're spending a lot of time with Jesus. And um, you know, something else, uh, the baptizer did no miracles. We know that because uh, when... John the Baptist, after he was beheaded and Jesus was doing signs and wonders, King Herod was like, you know, thought maybe this was John the Baptist coming back from the dead. And that's why he was doing miracles now. We have no record of John the Baptist doing any miracles, but also we have that confirmation of the text that he did no miracles. So the baptizer did no miracles himself, and, and so uh, I, I just want you to kind of like look at the, the contrast, right? Like he's, he's preaching and he's proclaiming, he's making the way, he's doing all this hard work of plowing the ground. And for a moment, he's the shining star, but even as he's the shining star, uh, I, I actually do like the way the chosen like portrays it. Peter talks about, you know, um, creepy John, you know, and all this kind of stuff. I mean, John's like a, 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 a weird character, is he not? I mean, as a, as a person, a camel hair, eating locusts, you know, all that kind of stuff. Not exactly like, you know, a real, you know, socialite kind of, you know. Uh, uh, and, and so he's doing these things, he doesn't get to be in Messiah's inner circle. He does no miracles, right? And then finally, he's in prison, and he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask the question, are you the one, or should we look for somebody else? Here's the real question. Here's what he's asking. I've been preaching out of Isaiah. In Isaiah, it talks about that in this coming that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, in other words, the Spirit of King Yahweh is upon me to proclaim good news to the captives, deliverance for both those who are in sin and those who are needing freedom financially. He's like talking about a, a, a big picture of deliverance. We're not just talking about simply like I get my sins forgiven. There's this huge picture of, of changing the entire ethos of the world. And the question is, are you the one who's supposed to provide release for those in prison? Because see... Um, the guy that was preparing the way for you, that, that baptizer fellow, you know, like um, he's rotting in prison right now. And it looks like he's going to die there. And so, like what should, he, what should he think? What should he believe? He's in a moment of great pain and difficulty and he says, you go back and you, you tell John this. Tell him what you've seen and heard. The dead are raised. The captives that, that, you know, that are being set free. He's talking about demonic oppression being relieved and all this kind of thing. And he says, how happy are those who have no doubts about me. You read between the lines. 
I am not coming to liberate you from the cell. That's hard. I think that's part of the reason why we speed bump it. We just kind of move on past that because it's, it's a very unceremonious end. Some girl gets up and dances half naked and he loses his head, right? And you like go, and you and I realize that like we live in a fallen world and the suffering servant goes through that world with us and sometimes we have these, these amazing, miraculous moments where Peter walks out of a jail cell or, or the chains fall and Paul stays there and ends up baptizing the, 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 the Philippian jailer or whatever else. But, but often, like it ends up in the martyrdom of the saints and the, the blood of the saints waters the seeds of faith to spread the gospel. Martyrdom has a, a powerful way of spreading the gospel, causing it to water and to flourish all over the world. Even today, the gospel most often advances in lands where it is illegal and it flails in lands like ours because we're afraid somebody might hurt our feelings if we tell them the gospel. So we have this kind of unceremonious end. The apostle even tells us the priests and the Levites came out. Why are you baptizing? If you're not the Messiah, you know, like, what are you doing? Can you imagine? I mean, like, you're like doing this powerful ministry. People are gathering and everything. And, and, and there's people, like, they come up to you. So, like, you don't do any miracles. What good are you? You know, what, why, why should we listen to you? Who cares about what you're saying? But his mission's twofold. Prepare the way and then identify the Messiah. And then get out of the way. It's an important, it's an important role. That first part, preparing the way, making the way straight, is a picture right out of road construction. I don't know about you, but I love road trips. Do you like road trips? Yes? No? Like some of you are like, yeah, you know, like if someone else is driving and I'm, you know, having fun watching stupid videos, cats, thing, you know, uh, you know, some of you like to drive. I'm the guy that likes, like I want to get in the car and I like, I want to drive and I want my, my books, audio books on you know, and like just like you go in the back and just be quiet. Let me let me drive. I have a good time driving, and um, and so uh, whenever I'm on a road trip, I I one of the things that like is intriguing to me that I regularly think about is I marvel over our highways. And, and now listen, this is not a preacher story. Okay, <laughs> let me be really clear. I'm not just telling you a story to like you know draw some things in. It, I marvel. And my wife can testify to this because we did a lot of, we've done a lot of ministry out of country, right? We lived in Mexico for a while. I've traveled around the world. And, uh, you know, uh, along the way, most of the world doesn't have our cool infrastructure, right? I mean, I know the Autobahn is, like, more impressive than, like, what? No, we have a country. We don't have, like, we don't have a country the size of, like, New Jersey. We have this, like this huge country, and you drive like for days, right, just across the state of Texas, uh, you, you know, I mean, we have this amazing infrastructure that we get on it, and we're going, you know, at, you know, somewhere between 50 and, I don't know, 80, 90 miles an hour down the road, you know, and our air-conditioned, climate-controlled vehicle downloading, you know, books from the, you know, cloud, uh, and, and that's crazy, is it not? It is really impressive. You know, when we were ministering in northern Mexico, we used to do uh, ministry in an area called the Copper Canyon. And um, from the last town 
to where we would minister to the Pima Indians was only 50 miles in a uh, in an SUV it uh, it took about 8 to 12 hours depending on the weather conditions uh, typically we would rent an SUV to take teams in and we would pay for the really high-end insurance so they could just total them when we brought them back one trip they nearly the rental place nearly always just totaled the vehicle because of the damage done 50 miles uh, we did learn we bought some uh, quad runners you know little four four wheelers you know and we could cut the distance down to just like you know three four hours so if we had an emergency we could run teams back you know, uh, during the time there, we actually, like, it occurred to us at one point when we were ministering back there that if anybody had anything serious happen to them, that there was no cell phone signal or anything else, you were just going to die there. We couldn't even get a helicopter to you. We're down in the canyon. It's just not going to happen. And we were like, wow, this is like a real moment of faith, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, and so here we are, we're ministering in there, and l- listen, Every time I drive down the highway and I go 50 miles to, say, like, Ocala in, we'll just say, under an hour. We don't have to get into the, you know, parsing that, but, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, like, that's a huge deal if you do not prepare the way, right? Like, it... it, All that infrastructure makes a ton of difference. When the baptizer came preaching the message of repentance, he was changing the landscape for Jesus. I want you to think about how difficult it was to bring this message about Jesus and to keep the Pharisees. Remember, we were talking through the Gospel of Mark, and I want to emphasize again that if Jesus was constantly withdrawing and he was telling people, don't tell this part, don't tell that part, And he said, because it's not yet my time. He took three years, just three years, folks. I want you to think about that. Like some of we've been walking with Jesus for 30 years and haven't shared our faith yet, right? Been walking with Jesus for 30 years and we think we're not ready to do the stuff of the kingdom. The apostles got three years. They're ministering to other people, they're praying over other people, right? And then they're trying to find that time alone with Jesus where he's building into them. And so he's telling people as he's delivering the, the, you know, those who are de- demonized, he's healing people, and he's going, shh, don't tell anybody. And of course, what do they do? Because we're people. And, uh, you know, and, but in the midst of all that, like he's trying to buy time to spend with the disciples to equip them so that on that day when the Spirit fell, that they would be prepared so that they then could make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. Had they not had that three years, can you imagine the disaster? I mean, if, if, if Peter and Judas, right? I mean, like, look what happened on the day that Jesus died on the cross. Look at the quandary. Look at the fear. Look at the way it just drove them, right? And Judas, like, gives in to worldly sorrow and just ends himself. Peter, it takes him a while, and, and, and the Lord appears to him and draws him back in. Uh, the other disciples, they just, like, they didn't even, like, hang around. They just totally disappeared. That was after three years of prep. They needed that three years of prep, do you think? Please don't like be all spiritual and go, well, they had the Holy Spirit and you have the Holy Spirit too, same Holy Spirit. So if you want to play that card, like, then why aren't you like going to the ends of the earth, right? <laughs> I mean, why don't you, you just fill in the blank. Yes, they had the Holy Spirit. Jesus was preparing them while John the Baptist was laying the ground. He was 
plowing up the, the, the fallow ground. Have you, have you ever done any uh, taking care of soil and prepping it to be able to plant something uh, after it's just been pounded down and used up and everything else and you plow the ground and give it a chance, to, the soil to aerate and you plant those seeds and you water them and you care for them, but you can't do all of that unless you first plow the fallow ground. And John the Baptist comes with this message and he's taking back over the whole commission that Israel didn't do that they were supposed to have done for thousands of years. They've been given this commission. God kept giving them the opportunity. Hey, do the job. Hey, do the job. He sends the prophets to them. I want you to stop being stupid. I want you to do the job. I want you to proclaim the gospel to the nations. Quit doing your own thing, and I want you to do the God thing. And after thousands of years of being thick-headed and unwilling to do the job, like John the Baptist comes and does it in just a handful of years. He is plowing the fallow ground. I want to tell you that what John the Baptist did was significant. I would suggest to you, and the simple fact that God felt it was necessary, it means that the gospel would have never gone to the ends of the earth if John the Baptist hadn't done what he was supposed to do. He's not a speed bump. John's own description was, I am the groomsman and he is the bridegroom. I must, he must increase and I must decrease. He understood that his role was not to be the hero of the moment, not to flirt with the bride of Christ. No, his job was to prepare the way, to prepare everything so that at the marriage feast of the Lamb that Jesus would get his spotless bride. He understood that it was his job to step back, not to be the hero, but to be the hero maker. Not to be the one that everybody was fawning over or thought the world of, but that he was constantly pointing the way to him who we should actually think the world of. John the Baptist, like really and truly, his ministry is your ministry. You and I have not been called to be the hero of the story. Nobody is supposed to fall in love with you or the preacher or the worship leader or anything else, that's when we get it all wrong. When we put people up on stages and we make them this awesome thing or we think that only those people can share the God, you are literally just saying that God's plan is stupid. You've got a better way. Let's make heroes. Let's make heroes out of men and then watch them fall and shame us in the public square. Let's make heroes out of women and they can do the same thing. It's, it's, it's an equal opportunity. We're egalitarian. Everyone here can screw up and embarrass the gospel, Right? Or you and I could be the kind of hero maker people who do what John did, right? And we prepare the way, we, 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 we plow some soil, and, and sometimes uh, we get, I, can I just tell you as a pastor, sometimes I get to lead people to Jesus that I had nothing to do with. Somebody says, hey, I've got this friend, and, and they just won't do it, and I'm like, you, you're perfectly, oh, you know. And so I go, and I get to share the gospel, and they like, you know, and so in a matter of a few minutes, they go, oh, that's wonderful, that's such good news, I want the gospel Oh, that's, well, that's cool. You know, I mean, like, I got to do it. Yay. I have baptized a lot of people over the years that I had not, the first time I met them was in a tank, right? Don't tell me I had anything to do with it, right? I, all I got to do was go, swoosh, woo! It's cool. But other people, sweat, blood, and tears went into spending life with them I got to be a hero, but thank God for the hero makers, the people who like poured their life into other people who didn't need to be in the limelight. They were just willing to pour themselves out. Who were willing to share the gospel. The baptizer came preaching the message of repentance and he changed the landscape. You know, um, Malachi describes the Elijah as the one who turned the hearts of their fathers back to their children. The receptivity of the Jewish leaders towards the baptizer, without miracles, Gentiles or Samaritans, you know, I, I, it still wasn't great. They were still harsh with him. They still didn't like him. And it all took tremendous energy for him to plow that ground. You may have heard the old saying, it takes 20 years to be an overnight success. 
The baptizer laid the foundation. And in three years, Jesus trained the disciples, got the apostles ready to do their job, and was resurrected. So it was really important that somebody plowed all that ground before that seed went in. And I think that's just what you, you know, like, maybe someone here needs to hear that. You're plowing hard soil. And maybe you think that, like, what I'm doing doesn't matter. It, it doesn't change anything. And I haven't, you know, I, I, I'm never the hero of the story. Can I just tell you, what we need is we need more hero makers, not heroes. We only need one hero. His name is Jesus. And so on the outside, like it may not look like all that pretty, but I, can I just tell you, here's one of the things I have discovered over and over again. Discipleship is not a four-step process of sharing the moment of salvation. That's cool when you get to share that moment, but the glory moment, but the real work is not in sharing the gospel in 10 minutes in an elevator. The real work is living your life in front of those people, knowing when to loose your tongue and when to bite it, picking up messes, cleaning up vomit, pulling heads out of toilets. Pulling people out of places that are, steal, that are stealing their humanity. I think we need a whole lot more John the Baptist. That's how we get the road ready. That's how Messiah arrives on the scene. And when you and I forget that, or if we make, if we like are, are trying to be the hero all the time, we kind of like become the anti-hero. We stop listening and watching for what God was doing. We stop looking and listening for who God was trying to reach. Everyone wants to be a hero. You and I, we need more hero makers. We need more groomsmen, not more grooms. And when we do, when we come to that place where it's not about being the hero, but listen, we will see a whole lot more fruit when we get over ourselves and we see this as a team effort. Amen or oh me? All right. So you have to ask yourselves, whose report will I believe? I will re believe the report of the Lord. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way the most recent podcast will always be in your feed ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.